HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. In the Drink is the show that brings you the most interesting people in the beverage world. And I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, when I'm not hosting In the Drink, I am uh, working on a little bit of wine in Italy called Anona. Um, you can find out more about Anona wines at anonawine.com, A-N-N-O-N-A wine.com, including where to find uh, the wines, a bunch of great restaurants and retailers, mostly here in uh, New York. Uh, But we're going to get right into it today. I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, He is the wine director at a restaurant that has four New York Times stars, three Michelin stars, and was recently named the number one restaurant in the world by Pellegrino. Um, It is Cedric Nikkei's, the wine director of 11 Madison Park. I'm so excited to have you on uh, In The Drink. You're in the the middle of one of the busiest times uh, in your life, I imagine. Uh, So thank you, especially thank you for for coming uh, at this time. Joe, of course. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and it's great to sit down and talk with you. Uh, so you're in the middle of, uh, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about what you guys do is that you never kind of rest on uh, all of your accolades. You're always, you guys are always pushing and trying to improve and trying to change. Um, and one of the things that you're doing now, which seems unbelievable to me, is simultaneously renovating the restaurant for months for the whole summer and opening up an an entire restaurant out East in the Hamptons. What I don't even know where to begin, but like, how did, how did this come about? Uh, uh, I've been to the restaurant recently. It didn't seem like it needed a renovation. It seemed absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, tell us about the renovation and what, what's going on, uh, out East. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think what you said, 
is right. I think we definitely don't rest. Um, but so right now, uh, for the, basically the last, I would say, you know, from from the top down for the last year, we've been planning to basically gut renovate the restaurant. Um, I want to leave it a little vague. That way, uh, okay. when you, you come in, you, you can see the difference and uh, not have the spoiler. But um, the kitchen, it started with the kitchen renovation. Um, and then it sort of snowballed from there to we're you know, gutting the, gutting the dining room too. Um, there's no question that the first time someone walks in the restaurant from, from what it looks like now to when they come in the fall, that it will immediately look different. Really? Yeah. It's, wow. It's, uh, when, so when, uh, is it reopening in the fall? So we're shooting for mid September. Yeah. I think anyone who's ever done construction in New York city knows always that, delays. uh, always delays and you know, whatever. So mid September, uh, we should be back up and running. And, you know, I think it's a crazy time schedule. Our last day of service is a week from Saturday. And then I think demolition starts on Monday. So, okay, you guys were just named number one restaurant in the world. Uh, I know even before that, uh, you, it, it was a hard, a hard ticket to get. And people had to plan out well in advance of the reservation. I mean, I imagine that having this date, uh, by the way, before asking that question, I just want to say that uh, I, I, as a New Yorker and as someone who works in the restaurant industry in New York, I felt like some really big hometown pride that you brought the number Thank one you. restaurant in the world to New York. So congratulations. Thank you. And It's been uh, crazy. I mean, it's, it's so well-deserved. I haven't been to all of the restaurants in the world and certainly not all the ones on the list. But uh, in, in my experience and limited experience, uh, it's completely well-deserved. You thank guys you. earned it. And I'm super proud to, that it's in New York. So thank you. Um, but w- w- this must be the most crazy time you get this. I mean, I know the phone's ringing off the hook before, but how do you guys even go about managing uh, this must be a, a huge influx, uh, the probably normal influx where like you get to be that, that level. And then, Oh, by the way, it's going to end. Like it's, there's a limited amount of reservations until, you know, until the fall. Yeah, I would say that before we were number one, we could fill the dining room a second time every night with our wait list. Right now, there's probably a wait list for four times as many tables as we have, wow. maybe maybe more than that. And that's people willing to put themselves on the wait list, not just calling and being like, hey, you don't have a table? Great, and hanging up. Um, I think part of it is trying to find something to make them feel okay with not being able to get a reservation the nomad mm. the, the bar um it's 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 a challenge i mean you know it's it almost sounds disingenuous to to be like oh it's you know the best the best problem you can have but you know it, it's amazing how much people want to come to love madison park right now and it's that's the most the biggest compliment the most you know the, the most amazing part about what we do right now is how many people want to come experience it. Can people still come in and walk in and sit at the bar and have, have a taste or is that like yeah. crazy? So we, we do a bar tasting menu where we reserve uh, six to eight tables per night. And then and there's a couple tables for walk-ins and the 11 seats at the bar 
our walk-ins. Um, you can come in. There's definitely, you know, there, there's definitely a wait. If you're willing to wait, we have uh, some couches in what we call the lounge that you can have a couple cocktails in and, and hang out. Super comfy. Yeah, super comfy. Um, we, you know, it's hard because we can't guarantee how long mm-hmm. uh, it'll be. You know, just like we would never ask the person waiting to, to get up and leave for someone else. We don't ask the person that they're waiting for to leave so um but that that's the best way those you know especially if you want to show up right at five thirty, oftentimes you can you can snag a seat the you know the early bird special yeah i wondered uh, your the menu has shortened a little bit over over the years right it used to be this like really long i remember um i had a six or six thirty reservation years ago and uh i was like all right i want to meet my friends and go listen to some jazz at like 11 (laughs) o'clock at night and like we like missed the i think by the time we got out of there was you know as well as well after 11 but it's shortened over the years like as part of that to accommodate changing tastes or to be able to accommodate more more guests uh like what what is the thought process so the 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 history of the, of the menu sort of, as from what I remember, uh, sort of goes like this. Um, there was sort of the a la carte, shorter prefix menu um, that had like a tasting menu. There was once a suckling pig menu where you could, it was all uh, different, different courses of suckling pig. Then everything got consolidated to uh, a four-course grid and a tasting menu as an option. And then that lasted maybe two, two years, two and a half years. Um, and then in September, and this is sort of when I come in, which is why I can remember the dates a little bit more, September of 2012, uh, we switched to tasting menu only. Um, that was for a number of reasons. Um, I, I think when we looked at the numbers, the majority of people were already doing the tasting menu. Um, so it didn't change very much from what was going on beforehand. Um, you know, maybe 20% of people were, were choosing the four chorus at that time. Um, we also really focused in on what drove us as a restaurant, which was to, to focus on ingredients and uh, traditions of New York and different, you know, like the clam bake course was definitely something that was inspired from, you know, having a clam bake on the beach in Long Island. Um, so that that really took focus there. We went to a little bit longer tasting menu, but it wasn't much longer than what we were doing before. It just had much more focus. Mm-hmm. Um, that lasted until January of 2015. Um, where we sort of shifted again, um, removed a couple courses, made the courses a little bit bigger. Um, and that was, I think, both a reaction to our, our changing taste. And when I say our, I, I say, you know, the, the creative direction comes from Will Gadara and Daniel Hume, the, the, the co-owners and chef. Um, you know, they they really try to make the, the restaurant the restaurant that they would want to eat at. Um, and they they were like we don't we don't really want to sit for four hours at a dinner um, and then you know and I, and I totally agree with this often the longer the tasting menu gets the more some of the courses are are, are forgettable mm-hmm. and then there's never enough of the stuff that you really like um, so by really taking fewer dishes making them all super amazing rock star dishes and then giving everyone a little bit more of each of those. They felt that was more of what they would want to eat. Um, and then we also incorporated a lot more choice. So, um, each, not each course, there were some communal, communal things where it was pre-planned, but, um, you know, there, there's choices for, for a lot of the, a lot of the courses, which is cool. And it's also, you know, in some ways when I eat with my wife, uh, it's, it's, I, I like to do a shorter tasting menu if we can do, different courses with each thing and we you know we share each 
uh, each plate, and it, you know you get the same same amount of food, the same number of dishes as you would over the long course, mm-hmm. um, and you just do it a little bit faster, which I, th- I think is important. Yeah. I've, I've loved this current iterate. I went for my birthday this year, um, and it was so memorable. Uh, it was amazing. And so I, I really love the way. You, is there going to be a, another uh, menu iteration when you guys come back in the fall? Is That's to be determined or to be not to be announced? Determined. Not yeah, announced. Uh, right. It's unannounced, even internally. Okay. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of the food that's being created for the new menu, but I'm super excited. You know, generally we, we work one season out and you have, we, our chefs have about three months to create a whole new menu, um, before it goes live. This time we, we have double that because we are creating now for the fall, which is pretty amazing. Okay. So tell us about what's going on in the, in the Hamptons, this three month or so pop-up. What's that going to be like? Yeah. So we, we found an amazing space out in East Hampton. Um, we've, added to it we've we've you know made it more emp ish um and we're gonna run i think what a restaurant that people who are in the hamptons want to go to fun casual you know there's uh basically three separate spaces the front space um will be a little bit more formal um but still you know a la carte sharing um lively loud um the middle room is gonna be for walk-ins and then also have some large format food options. We're doing a uh, fried chicken dinner and a lobster boil dinner um, for six to 12 people, um, which I think is awesome. I think that I, I like I constantly try to push my wife to do something like that and she sort of pushes back. Um, but I, I really like the idea of idea of doing like a like a fried chicken dinner, you know, some sides, a bunch of yeah. chicken. I've had Chef Hoom's fried chicken. He's pretty amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I can't and then, picture him eating fried chicken. It just blows my mind. <laughs> he's like, it's like classically trained chef who yeah. is, you know, like a decade older than me, but in better shape than I was in 10 years ago. Like, uh, you know, like he, I can't picture him eating fried, but he can cook a fried chicken. Like I've never had before. He, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how he's able to do like highbrow, lowbrow, you know, it's just as important to him to have like the perfect foie gras as it is to have the perfect fried chicken mm-hmm. and the same amount of attention to detail goes into both. And I think that I think is what makes our kitchen really special because that that whole mentality goes right down from, you know, from chef all the way to, to the porters. Um, and everyone really strives to make everything perfect, whether it's, like I said, like a specific dish or um, the, the past where all the dirty dishes go mm-hmm. and everything is the same attention to detail. So what are you doing with the are you bringing part of your wine cellar? Are you transporting it out there? Yeah. So we're going to take we're we're gonna do what what i think is maybe the most fun project or i'm in the middle of the most fun project i could do which is essentially cherry picking from my own list um so we're gonna create a list of 200 to 300 wines um put it out there and see and hopefully people will receive it well it's not going to be super creative i don't i'm not looking for like you know the orange wine from Slovenia or, you know, the crazy varietals from out in yeah. California. It'll be a little bit straightforward, um, but definitely have some like up and coming producers and some, you know, new California wines uh, mixed in with, with some classics. You know, I, I think, I think it represents a short representation of what our list is at EMP. Yeah. But sticking more towards the classics and finding, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is so great about what you guys do. I forgot who I was talking with this uh, about the, the other night. Um, 
Oh, Will Nazar at the at the grill. If you know Will, yeah, uh, I, I, I've met him a few times, but I don't, I don't know him well. And I was I was talking about how like I, when I go to your list, like and I go to Eleven Madison, there are just so many great bottles of wine that it's like hard to choose. And how I I like you know I rely on your sommeliers, uh, even though I think I know something about wine. Like, so. but your your lists are are amazing. And I feel like that's what it what it should be in a great restaurant like that. There should be so many good choices that it's kind of hard to choose and you need to rely on the expert of the small A because it's so great. And the way, one of the things I like that you guys do there is that you're finding the, uh, maybe the less famous wines from a great producer or the less famous outside areas of, I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about is finding wines that I can actually afford, right? Like yeah. you can, anyone can buy, can know that a thousand dollar, you know, bottle of Grand Cru Burgundy is going to be delicious from a top producer, but the you guys, you're also able to find really excellent bottles at a lower price point. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, I'm sure that people are going to be spending a lot of money in the Hamptons uh, as well, so there'll probably be some expensive ones, but uh, it sounds like maybe you're going to be finding some of those like kind of cool up-and-coming producers or outside the most famous parts of famous regions as well. Yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. You just totally nailed it right on the head. I mean, it's that's almost exactly what I try to do. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really easy to just buy a bunch of really expensive wine and throw it on the list and just wait for people to buy it. Um, but and it's also really easy to forget that not, especially you know, we're the wines we sell. We're incredibly fortunate to taste and open and talk about on a regular basis. But the reality is that not the the majority of people that come to Eleven Mass Park don't spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. We're we're fortunate that some do, um, but it, it's really important to me to offer uh, the same conversational experience with the sommeliers for someone who wants to spend. 100 or 150 or less um, that you get when someone wants to spend a thousand. So talking about different regions, different producers, different vintages, um, you know, often if you're, if you go to one of the top restaurants um, and you want to spend under a hundred bucks, you're like, okay, it's current release, 2014, 2015. Um, you have four or five different choices, maybe from some regions you've never heard of. Uh, and that's it where I really try to focus on, um, and I think you said it best, some, some of the lesser known or some of the lesser, uh, pedigreed wines from some of the great regions, the Rhone in particular, Burgundy at any price point under hundred bucks is starting to become really hard. Um, I, I think the wines and, you know, weather conditions are, are definitely leading to it, but Burgundy is starting to become cost prohibitive mm-hmm. at the sub hundred level pretty much across the board unless you unless you really go to some tertiary appellations um but the rhone you know even bordeaux with with the kind of karachi's movement that's going out there um and then certainly california if you're willing to to explore outside of napa sonoma there's some cool stuff going on and i think those are the wines that that we're really excited to sell and to show people and we're lucky that um we have the space to store them for a few years if necessary and offer some older vintages yeah and how many of you have a team of how many sommeliers and how many people are going out i can't that's something that also kind of blows my mind that you're able to like convince and accommodate uh, a, a huge amount of your team to be going out east so we, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna public service announcement this quickly. But uh, we, we have a team of six sommeliers, and we're looking to hire two, two, two sommeliers uh, for the fall. 
So okay. there's, there's plenty of time if you would like to come to 11 Madison Park and you want to leave your current job or move to New York City, um, please get in touch with me. However, I don't necessarily want to throw my email address out here for the public, but um, it's, not, it's also not that hard to find. Um, but, you know, we, we are definitely looking for amazing, hardworking, knowledgeable, uh, friendly people to, to come join the wine team. Uh, for the summer, the entire wine team's coming. Um, wow. it was, it was both amazing or I guess not just both amazing, surprising, um, touching, whatever you can say that, you know, when it was brought up, no one on the wine team balked. Um, we have one guy who's married who actually now works with his wife. Who's kind of like, I don't know if I want to go, if my wife can't go, but we hired his wife. Uh, so that solved that problem. That's Mia from North End Grill. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and Andrew. Yeah. So wow. it, Mia just started maybe two months ago. So to the, you, you guys who are going to be excited about applying for this, you're going to be working with, I mean, a team, not only is Cedric the, you know, one of the best of the business, but the other sommeliers there can and have run their own wine programs. Uh, it's just an incredible group of people. And, and like I said, that your, your list is like, I would be, if I spent as much time as I wanted to going through it, I'd be antisocial. It'd totally. be like, <laughs> yeah, I just want to go through you know, it's like 175 pages or something, right? It is. You know, it the the hard part for me because you know, I, not that I'm judging myself, but I, I look at the way the list has been in the past. Both when uh, John Reagan ran it, I still have some old copies of that list, and then when Dustin Wilson, my direct predecessor, uh, ran it, we we've done some consolidating in anticipation to this move. Um, so the, the list is actually much shorter, and in my opinion, much less good than than it was. You know, even six months ago. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to look at your own list and, and sort of see where the holes are. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing list. And I'm so lucky to work with the people that I work with and have worked with. Um, I would say that the, the team that, that I work with could easily run uh, any wine program, including, including our own, uh, as well, if not better than I run it. Um, and that's a testament to their hard work and all the time that they put in. Um, I think counting two, maybe three people that just left, I would say... There's a very real possibility that in the next year or two that there will be anywhere up to five or six master sommeliers that have worked at EMP since I've been there. Wow. Um, newly minted master sommeliers, so not counting Dustin. Um, and that's, you know, I don't know, and I, I, I don't, I would hate to f- someone feel bad about me saying this. I don't know a restaurant where a team of sommeliers works harder than at 11 Madison Park. It definitely exists, and if it does, uh, I would like you to come work for me, um, and, and I give you all the credit in the world, but you know, our team works, I would say, an average of 60 hours a week with um, generally two days off a week, but they, the hours that they put in and, and the intensity that it, it requires and the focus that it requires to work service at 11 Madison Park is d- certainly different than any restaurant that, I, that I've ever worked at. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. And I want to hear more about what it's like to be a day in the life of a sommelier at 11 Madison Park. Cool. Okay.
This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Right, we're back on In the Drink with Cedric Nikase, the wine director of 11 Madison Park. And uh, before the break, we were talking about um, a little about the life of a sommelier uh, and your, your team of uh, six sommeliers here in, uh, in, uh, in New York and 11 Madison um, working 60 hours a week. I know that you guys do a lot of uh, stuff beyond what the normal sommelier might do. I've heard something about a happy hour and classes. And tell us about what, what else goes into being a sommelier at 11 Madison Park other than just working service. So I think a lot of it, and I think the way being a sommelier is, is evolving, I think we're taking a lot of the things that other restaurants are doing and, and maybe doing the exact same thing or kind of uh, doing it to, to another degree. So every Wednesday we have what, what's called happy hour. It's a, it's a thing that evolved. It used to be on Saturdays, which made more sense for the name, um, which is a uh, partially required, partially uh, voluntary educational session, uh, generally taught by one of the sommeliers, but can be taught by anyone on the staff who has an interest. Uh, so we've had coffee classes. Sometimes we have outside speakers. Um, for the last, I would say, 12 weeks, maybe a little bit less than that, 10 weeks, uh, we've, we've been basically teaching uh, what the wine list will be like in the Hamptons with the size of the restaurant and the, n- the number of covers we're going to be doing. Uh, it's pretty clear that our, our staff is going to have to be a little bit more involved in selling, serving, opening, the, the whole thing uh, of wine. So we, I sort of, before it all started, kind of took an idea of what our core producers were going to be for, for the Hamptons. And uh, I, we let our, our sommeliers teach uh, anyone who wanted to come mm-hmm. everything that there is to know about those core producers. Um, we, we had some, some pretty cool classes. We had a white burgundy class where we opened up some PYCM, some Rouleau, Arnaud Ant, uh, Henri Germain, some pretty cool wines um, for everyone to taste and talk about and talk about the differences between Appalachians and producers and winemaking. Um, 
our Syrah class was was cool as well. Some Gonon and uh, I think we opened some Shav, Saint Joseph. Um, some cool wines for people to taste. Um, yeah, and then so beyond that, um, and we're we're going to take the summer to kind of hit reset on everything, but trying to figure out exactly what education at Levin Madison Park will look like and how wine education can can be fun obviously educational um and that people will 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 jump behind it there there have been times where we've done some really great job at this and then there's been times where we've done a a, a lesser good job Mm -hmm. of this and i think it comes you know if you're constantly educating constantly giving classes eventually people get tired you know everyone's working hard and coming in for an extra couple hours a week uh, can 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 be a lot but teaching the basic skills of, of wine tasting and blind tasting and serving and um, you know, the appellations and the, the basic core, core material of the, like the CMS exam or, um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, we're going to take the summer to really think about it as a team and, and figure out exactly what we want to do for the next six months to so a year. Tell me, is this a fair characterization that with a list of almost 4,000, it's totally expected that, you know, as a sommelier, you're not going to know every wine on that list. You're going to recommend the ones that you're more familiar with and more comfortable with. Um, and the ones that you don't know, like when you have time, like learn them, try to taste them and that sort of thing. But for the summer, when you have a more edited list of 240 wines, your whole team better know everything about all, you know, better be super familiar with, with that whole list. Is that kind of what you're, is that kind of how you think of it? Yeah. I mean, the team of so many is, I think the expectation is for everyone to know the majority, the vast, I would say all 4,000 wines. Okay. Well. Um, you know, and, and I think knowing those wines, I think there's different ways to, to know. And I remember when, when I first started working at EMP, you know, you, you obviously you're right. You, you, it's impossible to know all 4,000 wines. It's impossible to even know which 4,000 wines are on the list at any given time. But if someone points at a certain wine, it's really important to know, you know, the, the vintage. Um, and I think once you start putting in like the vintage, the region, you know, you know a little bit about winemaking. If you know a little about the producer, if they're traditional or, or more modern or, you know, whatever, the varietal you can talk about, you, ha- you have some talking points that you can give a very, I don't want to call it a guess, but a very educated guess of what that wine's going to be like, just using your, your theory and, and everything else put together. Um, but yeah, in the Hamptons, certainly the sommeliers are going to know every wine backwards and forwards. There's, um, we're going to sell each of those wines, hopefully numerous times. So they'll have tasted everything. And, um, but there's nothing, like I said before, there's nothing super out of the box on the list. So mm-hmm. hopefully every, everything, you know, when, when the list goes live, every, everyone will, will be really. And that'll probably be a big change as well. I imagine with such a big list, um, there's probably only a small handful of wines that sell frequently and a lot of wines sell kind of rarely, I'd imagine. Right. And so this will probably be, you're turning over the wine a lot more quickly. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I do the, uh, the wine and spirits restaurant survey every year. I don't know if you ever filled that out and it's like, what are your top 10 selling wines? And I'm like, I don't if you don't count BTG, like I don't sell anything. I don't sell more than like seven bottles of anything, you know, over the course of the year. Over the course of a year, you yeah, sell more yeah. than seven bottles of anything over the course. Yeah, of the year. when you when you look at our depletions, and there, I mean, there are some wow. exceptions, but we we rarely buy more than a case of anything. That's amazing, uh, and I think that also speaks to yours and, and your team's. Uh, I don't say integrity, but like it becomes really easy to fall in love with a wine. A guest gives you a flavor flavor profile, and then for a small age to be like, "Oh, you're gonna love that one. Just get get that one." And that just it becomes kind of lazy too. Um, so 
to have your team constantly suggesting other things. Uh, I mean, that's the only way that that would happen, that you don't sell more than seven bottles of a, of a, a single wine in a year. I mean, I would imagine that I would sell, you know, if I was one of a part of team, if there's something I really love, like I'd want to, I don't know. Then maybe that's because there's so many great wines on the list too. So I, I think part of that, and and it's not something that I came up with on my own. It's something that, that Dustin instilled into me is that you don't want to sell the same wine all the time. And, you know, and, and I sort of, if I see one of the sommeliers start selling, you know, if I see the same thing go out numerous times over the course of a couple of weeks, I'll actually just tell them to stop selling that wine. You know, part of working at EMP is that you get to sell from this list and taste all these great wines. If you're constantly selling the same wine over and over, I think for me, you're, you're missing part of the experience of, of, of working here. Um, so, so there definitely is some pressure for me to, to move on to other things. Um, but I, I think our team is so motivated to, to learn and to try new things that, um, you just get there eventually that people are always selling different stuff. Okay. Not to scare off those two candidates, but what is inventory like? Uh, so we use the software program where we have barcodes and, uh, inventory starts at 9am. We, we all have breakfast as a team, which is, I think kind of a nice, uh, thing for everyone to do. Mm -hmm. We, um, we sit down, chat, maybe have a venting session uh, and then start counting at like 9.15, 9.20. And then generally speaking, we're done by 3 o'clock. Get out of here. Yeah. It's, it, goes, it goes faster and faster every month. And you can see it when, when uh, somebody new joins the team. And this, and this isn't like a, a negative. It just, it just is that you'll see it. The time, it takes a little bit longer mm -hmm. um, with someone new. But yeah, every, everyone counts... Everyone has a barcode scanner and it's like, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. And once a month or so once a month, that's not so bad. No, it's not bad. Inventory, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And a few of the, the guys and girls who work for me have sort of heard me say when uh, the one thing I never want to hear, people are allowed to complain about anything. It's part of life. They're not allowed to complain about inventory. Um, it's a fact of life. You could work at a, at a wine program that only has a hundred wines on the list and only has a $10,000 inventory that yeah. turns over 15 times a month. Uh, you chose not to, so right. you know inventory is a fact of life. And if that's a well-run restaurant, if it's on, and they'd probably be doing inventory once a week. Yeah, I imagine. Yep, as opposed to once a month. Totally. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, inventory just is a fact, and you know, there there was a time where we did it twice a month for like six or seven months. That was oh. that was a little bit of a beat down. You could we could complain about oh. inventory when we did that. Yeah, and it's the whole team. So some people are working service that night too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So four people work service that night. Wow. Uh, myself included generally, but usually those, those couple of days around inventory, I'm, you know, consolidating and, and making sure the numbers add up and, and doing that, like those administrative parts of the job. Um, but yeah, four, four people will work, will work dinner and depending mm -hmm. on if we're short staffed or not, um, someone may have to come in and work lunch the next day at 10 AM. So you, you would work from 9 AM to 1 AM and then show back up at 10 AM the next day. Hmm. Okay, I want to change the subject a little bit. I've heard rumblings in the industry that maybe you don't love Italian wine so much, but I think it's not true. I've, <laughs> I've talked to you about Italian wine. Your wife works at, is the GM at Maialino, which has one of the best Italian wine lists ever. Um, do you love Italian wine or do you not love Italian wine? Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that I love Italian wine. My The three regions that, I, that I'm really drawn to are Burgundy, the Rhone, and Champagne. Uh, but I, I definitely 
am a huge fan of the wines from Piedmont. And I think a really important and I think a really great part of, of our list at EMP is the Alto Piemonte with uh, what I consider some of the very best values. And I think Piedmont in general, at every price point and at every sort of age level, offers, if not the greatest value in wine, certainly one of them. Great value. Great yes, value. Especially compared to Burgundy. Totally. I mean, Burgundy... Right? There's some similarities. Yeah, yeah. Some similarities, but I think the value for those great wines compared to the great wines of the rest of the world, they're just bonkers. I mean, you, you, you could drink, like, 60s Conterno, which is some of the best wine I've ever had, for a fraction of the price of you know, anything from the 60s in Burgundy. Yeah. I mean, it's like... And that's, like, the best producer from some of the best vintages. I saw a video of you, and doing research for this, opening up a bottle of Paolo Bea Sagrantino inside of Madison Park. So yeah. I, kn- I know that you love Italian. Oh, yeah. No, and we... we you know, it, it's hard, I, I think, and it's self-fulfilling for sure, and I think there's a lot of things like this. You know, like, we sell, like, much more grower champagne than we do, you know, the big houses. Mm-hmm. So we keep buying more grower champagne and less big house champagne, and then sort of like more and more, less less big house champagne sells. Um, Italian wine is sort of the same thing. We keep selling more Burgundy and more Bordeaux, and I keep buying less Italian wine, and we sell, and it's sort of. Um, but when when we reopen, I think um, I'm going to try to expand Italian wine in general, Piedmont a little bit. I would love to find, and I know it's some, something that you make, some Alianico, some age, and some cool stuff like that. Um, I think there there are a ton of really good wines that I'm that I'm missing the boat on. Yeah. Well, I know you love Corsican wines. I do. And so, I mean, Corsica, that's right across yeah. the, what was that? That's the Tyrrhenian Sea from Liguria. Yep. There's got, and then you, you have like a million Vermentinos, maybe the biggest Vermin, Corsican Vermentino list anywhere outside of Corsica. Maybe. Maybe even bigger than Corsica. Probably. Um, Especially now that the wines are starting to get more and more expensive. I I don't know how much of them they're selling in Corsica. Um, No, you know, it's something that I think everyone in EMP might be tired of hearing me talk about is I I have a real love for coastal white wines. Mm So things grown, you know, I I don't want to put a mileage on it, but close to the coast. So, you know, anything in, um, you know, Cassis, the south of France, Bandol, um, Liguria, you know, and then Sicily. And then I, you know, I'm still trying to find some, uh, Italian whites from like central Italy. Although, uh, I love this one producer, which I think used to be kind of cool and unknown, but I think now is much more well-known called Marissa Cuomo, um, whose wines I really love. Um, I visited her, uh, last summer. Oh, did you really? I would recommend for you a producer called Chiro Picker Yellow. Okay. Makes, I think the Best Fiano. Okay. Um, and he has this, this bottling called 906, which uh, was, which it was somehow the West Coast got it before us. And I had it for the first time at Catonia and uh, just had it again at Lilia a few nights ago. Oh, cool. It is outstanding. Chiro Picariello Fiano. All right. I will, I will find it. I'm going to make you write that down for me before I leave. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and maybe there are a couple of Verdicchios I might try to turn you on to as well. Okay. Now, you're, one of the things you're known for is opening up bottles of wine in uh, interesting, unique ways. I saw a cool vi- eater video of you, like with a bicycle pump and a bottle yeah, yeah. of wine. But at you know, at, at uh, Eleven Madison, the the cool thing that you guys are doing right now is, in terms of opening up bottles of wine, is the the port tongs. And uh, uh, I, I hope that's okay. Last visit I was there, they actually let me open up yeah, port tongs. That was like the coolest experience. Uh, my girlfriend Alyssa took a picture 
picture of me. I don't think my smile even fit into awesome. the frame of the picture. I was so excited to be doing this. Do you know where, where did that, where did you guys even consider, like come up with this idea and uh, why? So uh, I love it. Though. I didn't know you were going to ask me about this. We, I can, there, there's been different stories that have gone around of how this uh got brought to 11 Madison Park, but I, I can take this forum to kind of put all the stories yes. to bed and tell the truth. Let's do it. Uh, so years ago, when when I first started 11 Madison Park, we were closed on Sundays, and we took advantage. Dustin Wilson was the wine director, um, <clears throat> and he took us out to lunch at City Crab in Long Island City, or, yeah, I think City Crab. Um, and we had a bunch of beers and ate a bunch of crabs, and we were talking about basically how much cooler it is to work in the kitchen at EMP than to work in the dining room. They, you know, if, if they can think of a tool or a thing that they need to create anything, it just like magically appears uh, in the kitchen the next day. Whereas in the dining room, our job is essentially to uh, be the emotional and you know delivery system of bringing food from the kitchen to the diner, and then also you know wine. We're taking something that someone else made and pouring it into a glass that we also didn't make. So we we were really talking about how to put our own stamp on service and also how to be more cool. Um, playing with fire always cooler than not playing with fire. So I remembered from a previous wine director that I worked with that he had worked at a very fancy restaurant, um, also in New York City, where they would use port tongs on old bottles of port. Um, they would rarely do it because it involved putting the port tong in the salamander in the kitchen and then like running through the dining room, oh hoping God. it was still hot, yeah. clamping it onto the table and, and then doing it that way. So I was like, we should figure out a way to do that. And that's sort of where my involvement ended. Uh, I'm not the most creative person. I didn't, you know, I, I thought it was a really good idea, but I had no idea how we could do that in like an elegant, beautiful way at the table. So uh, a colleague of mine who had started actually a couple of months after, or a month after me, and then when I got promoted to be the wine director, became the head sommelier, John Ross, uh, who is maybe the most creative person, certainly in the world of sommeliers I've ever met. Um, he's also an Eagle Scout, so he knows about things that I don't know about. And uh, he, over the course of maybe six months, um, found the different tools necessary to make it happen in the dining room. And so we put it together, we tested it out, and now it's totally got a life of its own. I mean, it's, it's like a crazy. beautiful, amazing thing. Now, I mean, I guess initially, uh, from my understanding, you were doing it really only on like the most you know, like some of the older bottles or the most special bottles. Is it something that, I mean, people who are like really excited about, you know, the, the getting that service, even if it's not a super old bottle that, that you'll do for, for other tables as well. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean by it's kind of taking a life of its own. We, uh, <clears throat> we have portonged at this point, everything from, I mean, I think the oldest and maybe the most expensive bottle wines ever done was uh, thirty seventy chem, um, which is pretty cool. I was I, I, that cool. was me. That I was pretty nervous. It was uh, a bottle that a gentleman had brought in himself. I didn't I didn't really want to do it because if something had happened, you know, the, right. the glass is pretty old. How and, do you know? Yeah, the glass is super. I imagine that like vintage port glass is probably like really sturdy and meant to age forever and. Yeah, maybe because there's the whole tradition of doing the portongs, and but like, how do you know if like a dessert wine glass, like from? Yeah, I yet? mean, you know, bottles of port are definitely a little bit thicker glass, yeah. and then you know, thirty seven. That, that's you know, not quite fully in the war era in in Europe, but pr- 
pretty close. Um, you don't know what that glass has been through or whatever. Right. So I kind of right. tried to talk him out of it, but he insisted. So I did it. It was totally fine. Wine was great. Wow. Um, so, and then we've portonged like 2016 Sancerre. It's, you know, I think one of the amazing philosophies that we, we have at EMP is that we're not just feeding people. We're trying to create a memory. And the more things we can do to help create that memory, mm-hmm. um, we do, and we're willing to do. So if someone's like, hey, I'm, I'm just drinking by the glass, and I really like that, I would, I would like to see that, we'll portong something that we do by the glass. No. You know, it says, and it, it's, you know, and I, I think you said it, and I, you know, not to, to quote you back, but... Um, I won't be upset. For, forever, you're going to remember portong at EMP. Like, that's... You, you probably can't name half the dishes you had anymore, or maybe you can now, but six months from now, those memories will fade. The memory of doing the portong will be there forever. Um, and, that's, and that's what we're striving for. Yeah. You know, to us, that's what having the best meal of your life involves, is creating a memory and having something to remember for the rest of your life. Yeah. And uh, I, I kind of want to finish on this, on this last question, because we've got to wrap up. But uh, now that you guys are at this, this number one spot in the world, um, where, where do you go from here? Uh, I, I'm sure this was a, a goal that you had. It's, it's clear. You guys are kind of going up on the list every year. Um, kind of what did it take to get there from, you know, just a couple spots down? And now, now that you're there, like, how do you continue to, to push? Uh, is there any other, like, is there any other accolade that you guys can, like, are striving for that you haven't gotten yet? I mean, so first, where we're going is, is the Hamptons. Yeah, not, um, not a bad place. You <laughs> kind of deserve it, even though that's a lot more work. <laughs> um, you know, it, whatever I say now is going to make it sound super ego-driven. You know, part of part of the answer is we don't we don't know. Um, another part is that we we want to stay number one for mm-hmm. as long as possible. Um, you know, as far as other goals, I mean, can Michelin give a fourth star? I mean, like I said, like you know, it sounds it sounds super ego-driven. Um, but we're, I think, going to continue to do what what we've always done, and that's try to be the best restaurant that we can be and the version of that that we see fit. Um, and then hopefully people will continue to like it. I mean, we're, you know, we're super convicted and driven and working hard. We're also really lucky that people have liked what we've done. You know, it's not obvious for people to kind of come along for the ride that we're taking them on and and really like it. And we're, we're lucky that we have tremendous vision from the top. We're lucky that we work with people who are as motivated as, as everyone else. Excuse me. And then we're, we're lucky that people have liked it. You know, yeah. I, I think food and restaurants and wine is so subjective that, um, we're, we're in a really fortunate place. That's great. And it feels like you have so much, not only talent, but also energy behind you to keep pushing things forward. I'm sure people are going to continue to love it. Totally. You know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see where we are in, you know, a year, five years and and what we're doing. And, um, you know, I I think another goal is to, to try to shape, uh, hospitality in our view. And I think, you know, again, ego talking, I think we're already starting to do that. And I think that's super impactful. And, uh, you know, I think EMP can be a forum for the nobility of service and for um, restaurants being more than a place just to go to eat. Obviously, the majority of restaurants are going to be a place to go to eat. But if we can uh, change things a little bit here and there for everyone, I think um, everyone will benefit. All right. I think so, too. Uh, 
Thank you so much, Cedric. It's been such pleasure. a pleasure. Um, I. Haven't been yet, obviously, but I encourage everyone to check out the the restaurant in the Hamptons. Uh, I have no doubt, uh, at least just for the fried chicken, but for everything else as well. I have no doubt it's going to be a blast and really delicious. Um, the show was produced by David Tadashore. Help, thank you so much, David. You're the best. Help was provided by Haley Crane. And Katie Morseman-Wadler is the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening. This has been In the Drink. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.